Welcome to the Lubar Executive Education Podcast. In this episode, we'll be talking about a subject most people shy away from, failure, and how we can not only embrace it, but learn from it. With me today is Alyssa Cox. Alyssa is founder of Blue Swift Consulting, which is dedicated to working with organizations and individuals to not only execute change successfully, but to thrive during moments of transition. Welcome, Alyssa. It's great to have you here with me today. Thanks so much, Mike. It's a real pleasure to be here. There's a lot of places we can begin with this topic, and I'm thinking we start by asking, how do you view failure, and why do you think so many of us avoid failure, despite it being such a powerful teacher? The word failure is so emotionally freighted, because a lot of us conflate, I failed, with I'm a failure. And those things don't mean the same thing, right? They're not interchangeable. I'm a failure means negative outcomes are sort of inevitable for me as a function of something about me. It means nothing's ever going to change. I failed means I have something to learn. I have something I can do differently. There is a specific set of circumstances, a specific outcome that we're looking at that we want to drive some learning from so we don't experience that again. And when we conflate those two, I failed versus I'm a failure, we can end up shying away from failure. And it's not that we don't fail. I would say if you haven't failed at something yet today, it's probably very early in the morning for you, right? There is something today that could have gone better. And if you aren't thinking about that thing as a failure, it's probably because you're thinking about that in a constructive way. You're thinking about that in a way that allows you to move forward, do things differently next time. And that's what I invite people to do sort of across the board, much more broadly, particularly in an organizational context, acknowledging failure as a way to move forward requires a level of psychological safety, requires a level of security among the people that you're working with that can be hard to achieve. But I I really like the language of failure um, and the language, the, the I failed language because it drives accountability for me. I failed means I made a decision that I need to make differently next time. It does, I think, all come down to accountability and moving forward, staying face forward to what's next. I think that's a really healthy perspective and mindset to have. I'm with you where if I haven't failed, it's uh, probably pretty early in the morning. You got to learn to kind of make friends with failure and have a good mindset around it so you can grow and move forward. Understanding that you work a lot with uh, organizations and uh, individuals that are leading transitions, when I think about leaders, they're paid to implement change, and over 80% of change efforts fail, according to statistics. Uh, So how does one assess an organization's tolerance for change and failure before you set out for a big change? I think the question that we need to ask ourselves is, what is our organization's appetite for identifying failure early and often? So a lot of times when we talk about change efforts failing, it is little failures along the way, got swept under the rug, got hidden, got obfuscated because no one wanted to talk about them. People were afraid they were either going to be explicitly or implicitly punished for talking about things that weren't going well. And so those small failures accumulated to the point where they were unremediable. So those small failures added up to kind of a big explosion and a big sort of catastrophic failure. What I like to remind the people that I work with, now there are people out there who are working in situations where failure results in in catastrophic failure every time, right? Failure results in death. 
most of the people I work with aren't in those careers. So if you're in FPNA, for example, failure does not result in death. So let's right size our understanding of the risk and start to talk much sooner about things that aren't going well, impending failures, small failures along the way, so that we can unlock the resources that we need to move forward more constructively, so that we can unlock the resources we need to get back on track. But a lot of times, if you're in an organization and you look at status reporting and you see statuses that go from green to flaming red, that doesn't mean something apocalyptic happened overnight. There have been little things that have been going wrong for a long time and no one wanted to talk about them. People were afraid to bring them up. People were afraid to go yellow. And the reason people were afraid to go yellow, if you listen to the conversation when things go red, what proportion of that conversation is about whose fault is it that we're here right now? And what proportion of that conversation is what can I do to fix it? What can I do as a leader to unlock the resources you need for us to work differently and get back on track. And so if you look at your organization and what you're seeing is green to red and what you're hearing is a real an atmosphere of blame when things do go wrong, think about the way you're participating in some of those conversations. Those attitudes are perpetrated from the top down. They're also perpetrated from the bottom up. So wherever you are in the organization, you have the ability to have more constructive conversations about things that aren't going right. And when you model that relationship with failure, when you model a healthy relationship with failure, you create an opportunity for others to build a healthy relationship as well. Having been a project manager in several lives before uh, my current role, the saying is that the project is yellow or even red is always a challenge at the same time. If you don't, it's going to get worse. And eventually everyone's going to find out. If it's red, how do we get it back to yellow? If it's yellow, how do we get it back to green? And if it's your project, it's on you to come in and say, we are red. I acknowledge what's going wrong. Here's what I need. I remember early in my career, I was on a project. It wasn't going well. It wasn't the right fit for me. And so I reached out to one of my mentors in the, in the firm and we started digging into what was going on. And what she asked was, because what do you want me to do? And I realized in that moment that what I had was an observation of a lot of failure, a recognition of things that were going wrong, but I hadn't articulated what I needed to move forward. And so when you're bringing things that are going wrong, you're also on the hook to bring ideas for what to do next. Leaders may be able to unlock resources for you, but they want to know they're going to be used effectively. And if you can't articulate what you need, leaders know better than to just throw money at people who don't know how to spend it correctly. Uh, very true. And you're the closest one to the problem, most likely. So you should have a good idea of here's what I need to, to get this thing back on track. So thank you. If you find yourself in an organization that has maybe, as I could say, a lot of work to do when it comes to organizational attitude around risk and failure, what can you do as a leader to help evolve that culture, knowing it's not going to happen overnight? And are there any exemplar companies you can cite as maybe a model for inspiration? I mean, I think there are a lot of companies out there in the mainstream that are doing a lot of really good work with failure. And I have a really healthy relationship with it, right? So if we think about X, which is Google's moonshot innovation arm, they have an annual celebration where they hear testimonials about failed projects and they put failed prototypes up on a pedestal and they all celebrate it. 
And what comes out of X? Like who cares about X? Google brain came out of X, right? That's the deep learning division that informs, right? Like Google search and translate. It's kind of a big deal. We use it every day. Pixar, for example, believes that all movies suck at the beginning, right? And so they have this brain trust model where they bring early production movies into a group of peers who aren't involved in the project. And those peers take a look at what you're doing and give you constructive feedback. It's not a way to punish people. It's not a witch hunt, right? It's an opportunity for people to talk about what could be better, right? And then the people involved in the project can take that feedback and go fix what's wrong. By all accounts, Toy Story sucked when it started, but nobody thinks Toy Story sucks now unless you've watched it 75 million times. So there are plenty of organizations that are demonstrating a positive relationship with failure. Those two examples are like big organizations with sort of ingrained attitudes towards innovation. But that doesn't mean that you can't move the needle from where you sit. Even on our individual teams, like as I mentioned, right, psychological safety is critical for being able to identify and, and share failure, identify mistakes, remediate things in public. Uh, and psychological safety is highly local, right? It, is, it exists on individual teams, right? And it's not a function of your, um, it's not a function of your personality type. Environments with high psychological safety impact people of all personality types in roughly the same ways. It's not about whether you're introverted or extroverted. So you have the power to make a difference on your own team, whether you're leading that team or it's a team of peers. And so there are three things that I tell people to do, right? One of them is bring failure to light early and often. You got to make a regular habit of exploring what went right and what didn't go right. Uh, and you start small, individual meetings, individual presentations. But what you're doing is you're building a reflective skill that you can apply to larger and more complex situations. And by having those conversations openly, not just for things that your team could have done better, but things that you could have done better as well, you're publicly recasting failure as an opportunity for the future. The second thing that I tell people to do is don't forget the next steps. When you're faced with failure, it's so tempting to spin on what went wrong and whose fault it was, because the Lord knows, like, I don't want to take the heat for this thing. But that is a retrospective practice. Course correction isn't about what happened. It's about what you do next. So you need to make sure that when you start to see small failures cropping up, you don't stop at retrospection. You use retrospection to inform next steps, right? You are always moving forward. And then the last thing that I like to say to people is I like to encourage folks to have conversations about lessons learned, right? If you're doing a piece of work, doesn't really matter where you are in the organization. And there's somebody else out there who's done something similar, worked with similar people, go have a conversation with them about what it was like working with that person, what it was like doing this kind of work, what it was like being on this project, what that project went, and ask the question, if you had it to do again, what would you have done differently? What could have gone better? Framing the question in that way, you're still getting at like, what are the things you failed at? I don't wanna do the same thing. But framing the question in that way allows the conversation to be more collegial. It allows you to avoid some of the sort of emotionally laden language, and it allows everyone to be forward-looking. We're not saying, so the person you're talking to did a terrible job, but you're saying in the natural course of life, 
we move forward and we, we make mistakes and we would have done things differently if we'd known today what we knew then. And so having those conversations yourself, encouraging people around you to have those conversations, opening up your network as you see peers that are doing work, opening up your network and suggesting that they talk to this other person that you know, brokering that introduction, specifically to have this conversation about lessons learned, it normalizes constructive conversations around continuous improvement. And, and that's what we've got to be able to do if we're going to start to move the needle. I'm a big proponent of after action reviews, postmortems, whatever you want to call them. And uh, we talk about that a lot in our programs, along with just how important communication is uh, in everything that you're doing as a leader. So I agree with everything you're saying here. Once you understand the organization that you work in, uh, their tolerance for failure, how do top leaders approach putting their team into a position where failure is possible? even though you know you can talk about it and hopefully you have those lines of communication open, but how do you put your team into that position where there's probably a good chance they might fail? So McKinsey did a study of over a thousand managers, right, nationwide, and asked them about their tolerance for risk. And almost to a person, those business managers' appetite for risk was completely out of whack with the opportunity for achievement people are much more likely to avoid a risk than they are to go pursue a benefit beyond what the math would say is statistically appropriate. And when McKinsey asked managers why, all of these managers said they recognized that their, their decisions and their behavior was bad for their company, but they felt it was better for their careers. And so when you find yourself in that kind of a mindset. And when you find this is a natural sort of human approach to risk, particularly when we think about employment as being quite existential. So, you know, if you're a leader, you want to set your team up for, for success in developing a healthy relationship with failure. You've got to model being wrong and you've got to make a big deal about people who experience failure and then bring it to light. And when I say make a big deal, I'm not talking about crucifying people. I'm talking about getting, it's about clear and courageous communication, recognizing clear and courageous communication as such, and holding it up as a model for folks. There's no worse use of an organization's money than continuing to plow it into something that's never going to work. So recognizing the benefit to the organization of bringing up failure and asking for course correction or bringing up failure and acknowledging that maybe we need to stop this project and redeploy these people elsewhere. Creating an environment and having those conversations out loud with your peers as a leader and also with your organization. You know, the power of highlighting in one of your town halls, I want to talk to you about a project that didn't go well. I want to talk to you about a project that had some issues and what we did to fix it and what the right avenues are for bringing those things up and the kind of response you can and should expect from me as a leader and from my peers as leaders. It puts other leaders on notice that there's a positive way to react here. And it puts your team on notice that this is a space where you can actually make a difference. This is a space where you can fail and fail forward. But being really public about those in situations, about examples, and also about your own failures. People who see their leaders as not perceiving failures on their own or of their own 
are unlikely to bring their failures forward, right? If I think my leader considers themselves to be infallible, I'm not, I'm not bringing forward a, a genuine perspective here. I'm listening for the right perspective. I'm spouting it. So talking about other people's failures and the way that was beneficial to the organization, how do we talk about that constructively? Also talking really publicly about your own failures, things that you've done that could have gone better. These are all ways to normalize that conversation and to try to start to shift the kinds of conversations you'll be invited to as a leader. And there's a lot of great examples there and some great terminology that people can adopt. Can we shift this just a little bit to talk through conversations on a peer-to-peer basis? Can you walk us through an example of maybe what a normalized peer-to-peer conversation would sound like? So there are the conversations that I talked about earlier where, you know, I'm going to go out and have a conversation with my peer because that person's done work similar to this. And I want to know what they would have done differently. What are the pitfalls they want to avoid? I want to avoid that they may have experienced or observed, but didn't fall into whatever language we want. I just don't want to make the right. I don't want to make obvious mistakes. There's also a peer-to-peer conversation that's harder, that's around and more dependent on psychological safety, that's around identifying in real time where we've got failure cropping up. Peer-to-peer conversations where we say, hey, I think you made a mistake here, or I think this is going in the wrong direction. I think we need as a team to rethink how we do this. Those can be really hard conversations because that's failure in real time. It's failure that people have to acknowledge as such. And what I recommend that folks do in this situation, there are, ideally, you'd love to be in an environment where we're in meetings and we can bring these things up in real time in a group setting, because we just, we have that kind of confidence with each other, that kind of psychological safety. The challenge becomes, you know, people then start to take things personally or can take things personally, think can be delivered in a way that's personalizing which goes completely against psychological safety, right? And, and the, the, the rules of psychological safety. When you're in a meeting and people start to get defensive, they are, I find, rarely defensive about the work. They're defensive because they feel personally attacked. When you're in a meeting that starts to go sideways and starts to get defensive, it can help to just press pause and say, guys, hold on a second. Can we just align, realign on first principles? What are we trying to accomplish? Establish that we're back talking about the work and reconfirm for people in the room that we actually have the same goals. So let's all get back on the same page with what we're trying to accomplish and recognize that we're not adversaries in this space. There may be trade-offs that we have to make. Not everyone may be happy with where we land on the decision here, but at the end of the day, it is about the work. If you work in an environment where even that's not possible, then you need to find ways one-on-one to talk about failure in sort of less public environments, less stressful environments, ways to bring up, uh, and this can be in peer one-on-ones, it's really hard remote to have a casual conversation. Uh, you know, I used to like to do the drive-by, right? Like, I'm just gonna swing by your desk. I'm going to get a Diet Coke. You wanna come with me while we're walking? Hey, have you thought about this? This is now, we're physically moving, there's no sort of height differential. No one's sitting, no one's standing. We're all, we're just sort of walking. I'm getting a soda because I have vices. And by the way, have you thought about this? We can't do that on Zoom, right? It's very hard to be like, hey, I'm going to set a casual Zoom meeting with you to talk about something I've been thinking about for a while. <laughs> it's just, it doesn't carry the same sort of level of candor, the same sort of, uh, of 
comfort and convenience. And so, but, but those one-on-one conversations continue to be important. And so what I would say is whether you are a leader of a team and you're setting this up for peers on your team, or you're looking to set it up with your own peers, finding time in your day and finding a rhythm for yourself to connect with your peers on a peer-to-peer basis. And sometimes that's over teams, right? Like it's, it's via text through your work channels. Sometimes it's via sort of a, a casual coffee. You know, you schedule a coffee. We're just going to chat. If you have these things scheduled every couple of weeks, then it doesn't seem like it's out of the blue and like there's some ulterior motive um, because ostensibly, right, you are in fact being socially adept here. It's not all Machiavellian, but finding ways to have those social conversations with your peers can help you build relationships and set up more casual, less stressful conversations where you can start to bring in suggestions, things that you've identified and present them in ways that allow for a back and forth conversation and don't feel like accusations. That's great advice, especially with uh, the hybrid work environment that most of us are probably in uh, currently. In addition to concentrating on communication, we've been talking about that a lot so far. What else can a leader do to foster psychological safety and reduce the fear of what happens when failure does occur? Well, so I think part of it comes down to sort of how do we define psychological safety? Like what is it and what isn't it? Psychological safety first and foremost, is not about nice culture. It's not a culture where nobody gets told they're wrong. Again, the key is that communication and accountability are about the work. It's not personalized. It's not about blame. And psychological safety is this belief that the work environment is safe for interpersonal risk-taking, like asking for help or admitting failure. And again, we're talking about both formal and informal consequences. I think many of us, I know I can, can think of times when, you know, we haven't been explicitly public, explicitly punished for bringing up sort of admitting failure, pointing out mistakes, but there has been some implicit consequence there, an informal consequence. Perhaps you're not brought into the fold on the next thing. Um, You know, the, you're asked perhaps more explicitly to let others present on this stuff. These aren't, it didn't affect my pay. Perhaps it affected my, my performance rating at the end of the year, but sort of the immediate consequence was much more informal. If you're afraid that things like that are going to happen, if people are afraid to surface concerns and mistakes, they're afraid they're going to get embarrassed. They're afraid of some kind of either sort of financial or social retribution. They're going to stop talking. They're going to stop bringing things up. They're going to hold back when, uh, when they observe things that are wrong. I was on a pretty big technology project that was, we'll say, troubled to say the least. And one of the challenges that we had was, again, big integrated technology project, master data, which if you're not in technology, right, think about master data. It's like your whole project is writing a novel and the master data is the language that you're going to use. The grammar, the syntax, like the writing rules. And we're doing part of the project is this master data overhaul before we go do a big data warehouse project, before we go do a big planning solution project. That work stream kept slipping its dates. They kept running into problems. They'd go green, they'd go red, they'd move their dates, they'd be green, they'd be red again. And as they're slipping their dates, the part of the project that I was responsible was on the, the planning solution side, 
I raised to my project partner. I was like, we, we can't start until the master date is nailed down. And all of these date slips are, we're, we're on a day for day slip. We're going to miss, we're going to blow our dates. And what I was told was absolutely not. You're going to figure it out. And you're also not going to say a word of this to the client. And if you think that this is not the place for you, you're welcome to leave. Those kinds of messages, mastering they continue to be a problem. Other problems cropped up on that project. But I can tell you, it wasn't me sticking my neck out and raising my hand to say, hey, we've got an issue. We need to figure out how to make this work. Everything was sort of not my problem. It was safer for me, worse for the project to let these things accumulate, safer for me to back off and say, hey, clearly there's somebody else that's going to be accountable for this, this entire thing coming together. I'm not sticking my neck out to either identify the problem or propose a solution here. Those are the kind of low psychological safety environments that lead to what ultimately was sort of a catastrophic failure. There were five years on this project, tens of millions of dollars spent in consulting fees, and no solution was ever delivered to the client that the client could ever use because we didn't talk about where things were going wrong. And when things were undeniable, we were unable to sort of get our minds around talking about how to work differently, how to fix it in a constructive way. There was so much blame, so low level of psychological safety. So all of that sort of is a long-winded way of saying psychological safety is all about your expectations about immediate interpersonal consequences. And in risk-inclined organizations, organizations that sort of have a healthy relationship with failure and a healthy relationship with risk that are willing to try new things and get them wrong, that are willing to have upfront conversations about what's going wrong and how to fix it. Psychological safety is a cornerstone of those cultures. Once you've created a good line of communication and built some psychological safety, your team's definitely in a better position to dissect failures and learn from them. What are some of the best ways you've seen teams learn from failures in the past? I've done workshops after the workshop. You finish a presentation, you finish a piece of work, or you get to a certain milestone in the work, and you actually bring the team together explicitly to talk about what's going on. You know, we talk about postmortems a lot. I like to talk about midmortems. Don't let it be dead before we try to save the patient. Let's get our team together and start to have these conversations on a regular basis and have them be scheduled. Things that we work toward things on our calendar. If you want your team to start having these conversations, I think the best way that you can do that is to start scheduling these conversations, putting an agenda out there and leading these conversations and then schedule them periodically. This isn't like a once in a blue moon thing or a crisis thing. This is a regularly scheduled meeting where we talk about stuff that's not going right. And you gotta, as a leader, you've gotta be prepared to bring all the examples. Because if you get a room of crickets, where are you going to go from there? And you're not going to be able to think about the right examples and talk about them in the right way, especially on a team that's building this, this skill. You're not going to be able to do that on the fly. So as a leader of a team, schedule the time regularly, have an agenda, make it really clear what you want, what you want to talk about and what you expect people to bring, and then have your own talking points that can fill the meeting. You know what you're going to talk about. If no one wants to cop to something that they wish had gone better, you're going to start copping to stuff that you wish had gone better. And you're going to start sharing what other people have done that you think could have gone better. 
It helps to prep those people and be like, hey, this Friday at that meeting, I'd kind of like to talk about this presentation you did last week, just so you know. And this is what we're trying to get out of it. Can you help me out here? People are like, oh yeah, I can totally help you out. The conversations are hard at first. They get much easier as people recognize they're not going to be punished coming out of those conversations. Yeah, I love the mid-mortems concept. That, that is genius. And yeah, having them on this on the calendar ahead of time because we know something's going to go wrong, right? That's that's what the nature of projects. So great advice there. Before we bring this episode to a close, what is the top advice or suggestion you have for our audience to maybe try today? So one of the stories that, that I love to tell is never hide a dead fish in your desk. Everybody knows it's there. It's just going to continue to rot. Everyone can smell it. So stop spending your time and energy trying to hide it. Get those things that didn't go well or that are currently not going well, right? Mid-mortem out in the open so that you can talk about them, so that you can spend your productive energy fixing what's wrong, not Febrezing your office, right? And you can get on you back on track. Think about something today that you wish had gone better. Or think about, look at your calendar for the rest of the week or for next week identify something that you want to go right, and then identify who you're going to have help you do the postmortem on that thing. There's some presentation, some status meeting. It can be as mundane as a weekly status meeting. I promise you, find the person that you're going to call afterwards and be like, hey, is this going well? What can we be doing differently here to make this more effective? Someone in that room has an opinion. They may or may not be sharing it with you. You need to find the person with that opinion. And so I would ask you today, think about when you're going to have a conversation with somebody about what you can be doing better and get it on the calendar. Perfect. Thank you so much for taking time to be on the show and share all this advice around communication and dealing through failure and building psychological safety. If people are interested in learning more from you, where can we point them to? Absolutely. So I am on LinkedIn all the time. You can absolutely connect with me on LinkedIn. Um, we also have a website, blueswiftconsulting.com. We have a podcast ourselves. Um, you can hear other podcasts that I've been on or see sort of what we're up to. And if you want to reach out and sort of schedule an intro call, we'd love to talk to folks. You can either, again, reach out with, to me on LinkedIn, or we've got an informational request uh, on the website. Wonderful. I'll add some information in the show notes about those resources for everybody. In closing, I'd like to take a moment and thank our listeners. We wish you the best of luck as you move forward on your leadership journey. Please check back regularly for additional episodes.